David, what was your first job in the entertainment business? My first job in entertainment was a street magician in New York City. I, <laughs> I knew I wanted to be in show business and I wasn't sure how to get into it and I saw somebody else doing it and I thought, well, this looks easy. <laughs> so I went to a magic store and I bought a trick and I created a character and I did a comedy magic. I did a comedic version of a magic trick. And I just stood on the street, had a hat, and it was great training uh, for somebody who wants to go into the comedy business because if I wasn't good, people just walk away. <laughs> Immediate feedback, no waiting for thumbs up or thumbs down or YouTube comments. You knew right away. And it was really, really good training. And I did that for a couple of years. And from there I went into stand-up comedy. I got off the street <laughs> and dropped the magic. Okay. Was this your card? You know, I, I uh, dropped the magic, went and started doing comedy clubs and uh, went from there. My second job was stand-up comedian. I toured uh, like 200 colleges doing a one-man show and that was also really good training because they were all over the place. And so it's a great way to develop timing and jokes. And when a joke would bomb, what would you do? How would you get out of it? Oh, I never, never try to say that with a straight face. <laughs> um, well, you would have, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, most of the college audiences were great, so that wasn't a problem. But when you did comedy clubs, you never know what kind of, but you would have uh, a joke ready to talk about if it bombed. If you just acknowledge it, and then the audience, and you acknowledge the reality of it, then the audience laughs, it breaks the tension. Now, this is assuming that the joke before and the joke after doesn't bomb. If you're bombing 100%, I don't, I don't I actually don't know what that's like, that's not bragging, but that would be, we've all seen that, and that's, that's just, that's just terrible. <laughs> so you would, you would acknowledge when something wasn't working and then almost make fun of it and then move on, and that was how you dealt with it? Uh, yeah, if it, it's, I actually wrote a routine about a, where I told a joke that I knew most of the audience wouldn't like so that I could follow up with four or five jokes about the joke. It sounds kind of meta, and it was, but I would tell it, here, I'll tell you the joke. Yeah. Um, okay, here's the joke that most of you won't like. Okay, it's a knock-knock joke. I'm gonna do all the parts. I will do all the knock-knock joke parts. Okay, just one. Knock-knock. Um, um, Who's there? The no, I'm, sorry. Doing, oh, I'm, I'm doing the parts. <laughs> I'm sorry. Karen. Okay. Security, okay. can we get her out? Just, so the drunk in the comedy club. Okay. I'm sorry. I will do all the parts. Okay, thank okay. you. Yeah, let me put my Just relax. Back. Okay. Well, it's be easy for you. Okay. Okay, here we go. Here's the joke. I'm going to do all the parts of the knock knock joke. Knock knock, the time traveler. Who's there? Knock knock, the time traveler. Who's there? At this point, about a third of the audience would get it, and the other two-thirds of the eyes would turn to them and ask to be explained. Um, do you get it? No, a lot of people don't get it. Don't feel bad if you don't. Well, the time traveler's moved on to another realm? No. Oh, okay. The then time traveler sure. traveled forward in time uh -huh. to say who was there before you ask who's there. Oh, okay. He traveled in a knock-knock, the time traveler. Who's there? He's, he moved forward in the joke. That's okay. the, jo the joke is, right, right. the time traveler moved forward in time to the joke. And about a third of the people in the audience loved that joke, <laughs> okay? And the other third are like, you, they're like, you know, they either don't think it's funny or they don't, you know, it's not their thing. But like, certain types of audience love it. Like I did it at, uh, I did it at Caltech, they carried me off on their shoulders. 
Oh, you know, because wow. nerds yeah. love that. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I got, uh, they named a dorm after me. I mean, it was uh, not really, but that would be nice. And so, and then I did a series of jokes about that joke and about why am I doing a joke that I know people won't like. So it was an entree into my personality of someone being, uh, having a unique point of view and daring to, you know, to start their act that way. So, but that's like meta comedy. It's not observational Seinfeld type things like that. But I learned a long time ago to, when you're quirky, because people who really like that joke like it, it's like when people like certain TV shows or certain characters and they really love them because it speaks to them. And other people are like, how can you like that show? You know, they get passionate about it. But the people who really love it, really love it. Shows like 30 Rock, for example, uh, was never huge in the ratings. You know, it was like 90th and stuff in the ratings. It was never big, but the people who liked it, and me included, uh, really loved 30 Rock and it stayed on the air because the demographic who watched it was an affluent demographic. Dem uh, demographic. Uh, it had a huge audience of people who made more than $100,000 a year. So they kept it on the air and ran commercials for those people. Sure. So that's the great thing about the business today is if, you, or if you're making a quirky, stupid, time travel, knock-knock joke, there's gonna be enough of an audience who, who will like that kind of thing because it fits you. You know, it's like when you meet someone, if you're dating and you meet somebody who gets your jokes, it's and gets your, mm -hmm. you're like, yes. Right. They get me. Right. Yes. So then from New York City, when did you come to Los Angeles? I came to Los in the 90s. In the 90s. And what was your first entertainment job in the 90s? Uh, AOL, I, AOL, circa 1990. <laughs> yeah. I Dial did, up. I did some acting. I mm -hmm. did uh, commercials, uh, <clears throat> stand-up comedy. I was on Star Search. I did oh. uh, that whole thing, you know, doing that. And then uh, I got into uh, writing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did some acting for a while, and that was fun. I was on uh, the series Working Girl from the movie with Sandra Bullock, and that was uh, before she was Sandra Bullock. You know, I was one of the people, well, a lot of people worked on that show. But uh, so I did things like that, and then I got into uh, writing. When someone asked me, someone had, she was doing a murder mystery dinner theater. She wanted to make a business of doing those yeah, dinner theaters. Yeah, and she thought it was cool. a good idea. But she wasn't a writer and she said, you're funny, would you write this script? And she told me what the mystery was. She says, okay, this person is gonna be guilty and they did it this and that and that. And right around that. So I thought, hmm. And I wrote a script and I put in some quirky things that I thought no one would get but me or no one would like but me. Uh, like for example, the detective who comes in. Have you ever been to one of these murder mystery things? I have, yeah. yeah you know, they have these characters come in. So they had a detective come in, like a 1940s detective with a fedora, and he came in and he's a, you know, case in the room <laughs> and doing his thing. And I wanted to do a voiceover, like they do in all the film noir, where like the lead detective, the hard-bitten guy, there's a voiceover. And I wanted to do a live voiceover. So I came up with a device where he would do his own voiceover, his own narration, and he would the device I came up with is he would put his hands on his chin and look up like that. And then he would say, I walked into the room and she had legs up to her or whatever. And, uh, and he did, I thought, that'll never work. And it completely worked. The actor loved doing it. The audience got it immediately. And that was a really good lesson for me is that when you celebrate your own quirkiness, your own unique point of view, uh, it will frequently resonate with the audience. Like in things like, uh, for example, Napoleon Dynamite. 
is nonstop quirkiness all the way through. How many of us are that guy? No one, he's a unique character, but there's little pieces of him that we celebrate and we recognize in us. It was like, oh, if I had a llama, I'd go feed him lasagna too. I don't know if you remember that scene, but just all these, and he, he's an underdog and people identify with it and it celebrates quirkiness. So I put things like that into my first script. They rehearsed it, they put it on, the audience, liked it and I had two reactions. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It's when you're a writer and you see your work being done for the first time by good actors and a good production and it works, it's a huge, it's, it's a high. I mean, it's just an amazing feeling because you've been watching entertainment your whole life and now you just made it. And it's, a, it's an amazing feeling. So I had two reactions, that one which got me hooked He's doing it. And the second reaction was, this is easy. <laughs> Which sadly was not true. <laughs> because as you know, it's not easy to make a career of it. But it was enough that I kept doing it. So you had two television writing credits. One was Sybil. What was the other one? Caroline in the City. Okay, great. Leah so, Thompson, mm -hmm. the mom from Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. So how did you land those two jobs? That's really interesting. Well, I knew uh, Bob Meyer was the uh, exec producer on Sybil. That was my first job. And uh, he's, he's great. He's a very, very nice guy. And uh, he let me come in and pitch him. I wanted to sell a script. He let me come in and pitch him ideas. And then if he liked one, he paid me to write it. And uh, I, at the time, I was, uh, the job I had on the show was audience warm up. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. that. Mm -hmm. But anytime you go to see a live, yeah, anytime you go see a live show, uh, a live show takes anywhere from three, four, five, six hours. I worked on Friends. Friends took eight hours to shoot. Um, uh, every show is different. And they have a comedian who talks to the audience in between. And I was doing all these shows on the road, hundreds of shows on the road. I wanted to get off the road. And I found this gig. And it's great because you can stay in LA and, and work. And so I was working on Sybil, and so I came in and pitched Bob Meyer uh, ideas for scripts, for episodes. And I would come in and pitch him something I thought was hysterical. And he'd go, well, David, that's very funny, but that's not our show. And I, he, not such a nice man. He let me pitch him again and again. And I kept pitching funny ideas, but they just weren't that show. So I'm thinking, okay, this is the show starring Sybil Shepherd. It's a really good show. Christine Baranski co-starred, won an Emmy. Um, Funny show about a middle-aged woman who's a single mom with a teenage daughter and best friend. And what do I have in common, you know, with a middle-aged menopausal woman? They did stories on that. So I said, what do I have in common? And it was a challenge as a writer to come up with that. And I thought, so finally came and I pitched. I go, okay, Sybil wakes up one morning. Something is giving her grief. Her ex-husband, her daughter, something's a problem. She goes to eat some chocolate because that's the comfort food and finds out she's developed an allergy to chocolate. And Bob goes, there you go. So I found something in common. <laughs> I found something in common with a middle-aged woman. <laughs> Just, we love chocolate. <laughs> so, and I found that, and that was, again, that was a big lesson to me. It, you know, how to find a key into whatever show you're working for. To find something you have in common so you can write it with authority, and so it feels real. And why not continue with the acting? There was well, something in it, obviously, that kept you well, I got, uh, I just loved the writing so much. You know, I did a bunch of commercials. You have to go on like a 50 auditions to get one commercial. And it was fun and I liked it, but I really liked the writing. And then I started directing and that was, that was when I was really, really hooked. Because just making that all come to life and working with actors, 
it's there's something magical about it. I, I don't mean to sound uh, I don't mean to sound uh, sappy or anything, but there really is something amazing about it because when things are done well, it it touches me. When I watch a movie that works, it just really touches me. There's nothing like it, and so being a part of that process and creating it. Once you start creating it um, and you start to get successful, it's actually pretty humbling because you're really grateful that things work. It's like Shakespeare in love. Uh, in Shakespeare in love, uh, the money lender wants his money back from the guy whose theater it is. And he, he and the guy who's theater, because he, he says, this is all falling apart. He goes, no, no, it all, it's all going to work out. It, it show business seems like uh, the road to imminent disaster, but it always turns out well in the end. And he goes, how? And he goes, no one knows, it's a mystery. I mean, that line was so brilliant because it's true. There are thousands of people in this town all around us right now in these zip codes working really hard to make good movies and good TV shows. And when it works, there's no better feeling. So was there some sense of relief or a feeling of transition in that, you know, you said you didn't want to be on the road anymore. And so now, all that pressure of being the front man was off you and now you could be behind the scenes? Uh, there was that part of it too. That, that's very, it's very gratifying in a different way. Uh, being, you know, being in front of audiences, doing stand-up comedy, there's, uh, it's very gratifying to get a laugh. You know, especially if you've got an audience of thousands. You know, that's like a physical wave of sound that hits you. And that's, that's fun. It really, I mean, it's, just, it's, just, it's a great feeling. But uh, being behind the scenes and creating something is something tangible that's gonna last, something that somebody's gonna put in their DVD player in 10 years, or stream online in 10 years, or put their virtual reality glasses on, whatever <laughs> whatever the next thing is. There's just something really satisfying about that, because I, I love it as an audience member, and you know, I love it as a, somebody who creates it. David, all these years of being in entertainment, whether it's a magician, a comic, a writer, uh, why now with your latest project, which is I'll Be Next Door for Christmas, how long did it take you to think of it, to actually get it on paper, to then want to cast for it? What was the... Well, I was raising, I want to make an independent film that I could direct, mm -hmm. and I was raising money for another movie that's uh, much more expensive, like a four or five million dollar movie, and I was just going through all the processes of, of, of talking to rich people, going to independent film companies, doing all the things you have to do to raise that kind of money, and it was really difficult. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna try to be smart about this. I'm gonna write a low-budget movie so that I can raise the money more easily and make this movie, and then after that, we'll do the bigger one. So I specifically came up with this Christmas movie for business reasons and artistic reasons. Uh, the artistic reasons are, I love Christmas movies. I mean, they're really fun. They're all about Christmas being in jeopardy and the family driving each other crazy, but they come through stronger in the end. They're just really fun to watch. And the good ones uh, get a little, you know, they get sentimental at the end, but they get there in a way that they earn it, you know? And so I enjoy that. And the second reason were business reasons. Christmas movies sell, okay? There's a million of them on cable. They always sell. There's a big demand for them, and the studios don't make them. They make very few of them. They only make one every couple of years or so. And so they're in the business of making 
the, studio, the major studios make sequels, prequels, prequels to the sequels, uh, you know, comic books, movies, and things like that. That's their business. They'll make a $150 million movie, spend $200 million marketing it, and make $800 million on it. And that's, that's a great business model. But the independent producers are filling in the vacuum of the small character-driven movies, the comedies. And family Christmas comedies just aren't made that often, especially witty ones. And so I thought, for business purposes, this, this is going to sell. And because it's a Christmas movie, it's going to sell year after year after year. A Christmas Story was made in 1983. And it still makes a ton of money every season because people buy it and give it as a DVD. People stream it, you get it on cable. It's, it holds up. Christmas movies, if you'll forgive the pun, Christmas movies are evergreen. They're forever. Uh, people still watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life from 70 years ago and still has an income stream for the studio. So that's one of the reasons I decided to make a Christmas movie is it will provide income for the producers and the investors for, for decades to come. That's the idea. So that was one of the business reasons. And also, I wanted to do it low budget. And so I wrote the movie specifically that way. If you want to write a low budget movie, write for what you've got or what you can get cheaply. Okay. Uh, don't write big explosions. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's, no, there's no digital effects in our movie, nothing like that, no expensive post-production. It's a character-driven comedy. And the plot of the movie is a 16-year-old girl, her parents have ruined her life with Christmas. They're Christmas crazy, drives her nuts. She's got her boyfriend, her, the first love of her life, he's coming to visit her at Christmas. She doesn't want to subject him to a crazy family. So she does what any teenager would do. She hires two actors to play her parents and has a fake Christmas dinner for her boyfriend at the empty house next door. Who among us has not done that? Anyway, what could go wrong, right? So. Most of the movie takes place at two houses right next door to each other. So we can set up the crew, we can set up the location, and we don't have to move for four weeks. Now, I'm sure a lot of your audience knows that when you're making a film, the less you have to travel, you know, the more money you can save, the more time you save. So I set it up that way to be contained. You know, there's a couple of scenes outside there, but most of it takes place right there at those houses right next door to each other. Also, when you write it, have two characters in most of the scenes. If you have three, four, five, six, seven characters, every character in that scene, that's another character you gotta cover. You gotta get footage of that character. Every time you do that, it takes more time. So have a lot of scenes with just two characters. If you have kids and pets in the movie, and ours is a Christmas movie, so there are you know, there's some kids and, and a cat named Parsley, and uh, they're only in, uh, the cat's only in two scenes, and doesn't do any tricks. People just start carrying it. That's it. Okay. And the kids, the little kids, are, are only in about six or seven scenes. So that's another way save money. If you have stuff that's going to take time to do, don't write a lot of scenes for it. Okay. So there are a lot of tricks and things you can do to write a low budget movie so that you can shoot it well. Because if you're writing above your budget level, then you're going to be making so many compromises left and right, that the movie is just going to suffer. I mean, you know, that's, there's only so many hours in the day to shoot, you know. Actors can only work so long each day. And the other thing is if you write a good character-driven comedy or any kind of character-driven piece, you attract better actors because you're giving them something good that they can sink their teeth into that they want to do. So those are all the elements, uh, artistic elements, that I wrote specifically into the movie that were driven by business decisions.
And you have Jennifer Tilly attached? We have Jennifer Tilly, yes, I'm very excited cool. about wow. that. Mm -hmm. She's uh, Oscar nominated for Broadway, uh, for, I'm sorry, for uh, Bullets Over Broadway with Woody Allen, and she tells great Woody Allen stories, very funny stories, while working with him. And uh, yeah, she's got a Chucky movie coming out right now, nice. those, those fun Chucky movies. She's also a poker champion. She's won several poker championships. Oh. Yes, yes, I played oh. poker with her. Wow. She's really good. <laughs> Basically, it's a poker lesson playing with her. Uh, but yeah, Jennifer Tilly's attached to play the woman who owns the house next door that the kids stage the fake Christmas dinner in. So she's great to work with. She's, uh, she's a such good comedic timing. Always makes the joke work. Always makes the script better than it actually is. And we love actors that do that. <laughs> Make us look like geniuses. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> so. How did you get the script tour? Uh, I was working on a TV show and I came up with her and uh, she was in the cast and I came up uh, to her after at a rap party and said um, said hi and said can I give you a script for a movie that I'm doing and I don't mean to be obnoxious and I you know I'm sure you get this all the time I was saying it like half apologetically and <laughs> she stopped me and she goes sure and sure give it to me uh, she was very sweet and thankfully she liked the script and uh, that's, I, mean, I, just, I just walked up to her nice. and uh, wasn't takes creepy. Takes some hot spot, yeah. yeah. To just oh, was a nice guy. That. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember too, actors need material. They need projects. They need to do things too. So if you approach them in a respectful, business-like way, then, you know, if you act like you have something they might want, then maybe they'll take a look at it. I've had good success with that, actually. Just coming up and saying hi. Now I know you are raising money for the film on an equity crowdfunding site and, and you've briefed us a little bit behind the scenes that there are certain things you can't talk about and forgive me if I overstep the bounds so please stop me at any moment if, if it's something because I'm used to interviewing people that have been on you know Kickstarter, Indiegogo, some mm -hmm. of these other sites. So what is equity crowdfunding first and foremost? What is it? How is it different from Kickstarter and Indiegogo? Well, it's a new law that's just come into effect. It's only been around for a year. It went into effect uh, in 2016. And it's called regulation crowdfunding or equity crowdfunding, investment crowdfunding. And before this law came into effect, if you wanted to invest in a startup like Facebook or something like that when they were first starting up, legally, you had to be what they call a high net worth individual. You had to be somebody, I believe you make over $200,000 a year or have over a million dollars in net worth. And that let out, that, that left out 90% of the population. 90% of the population could not invest in these. Only these venture capitalists and these really wealthy people could do it. But this new law came into effect that allows other businesses to raise money to everyone. Uh, we can, the, the, the average person can invest in something with equity crowdfunding. And you couldn't do that before. And the difference between this and Kickstarter is when you put money into an equity crowdfunding project like ours, uh, if you did on Kickstarter, they'd give you a DVD or a t-shirt or something like that. This, you get a piece of the company. If the movie makes money, you make money. So you enjoy the success or, Failure if the, if the movie fails, of course. Movies can always you know, crash and burn. Anything can crash and burn. But if it succeeds, you go along for the ride. So that's the big 
difference. A lot of companies are doing it. A lot of microbreweries, restaurants, coffee companies, they've all successfully raised millions of dollars. Uh, electric cars, there's a new electric car out there. There's a guy who successfully raised millions of dollars for a jetpack. The first non-military jetpack. Okay. Could have, yeah. Yeah, it's so <laughs> cool. And I mean, they have the video, it's real. It works and you and you can put money into that company and things like that. There's tampon of the month club. Oh, good there, yeah, There's, I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. There's somebody starting up a company under this new law. We are the first feature length narrative film to raise money this way in the United States. There've been a couple in Europe, you know, a couple in Asia, but we're the first ones in America to do this with a feature length film. One other company did a collection of short films, but we're the first ones to do a full length narrative film. And it's really exciting. It's cool because it's new and nobody's done it. So it's really exciting and we're succeeding. It's going well. It is. I, I don't know if you're allowed. I, forgive me if I'm overstepping my bounds. We can cut this out. But are you allowed, if I say the dollar amount, I mean, you've done very well since April of 2017 is when you launched the campaign, right? Yes, we're doing well. Uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, regulates this offering. It's not like Kickstarter where anybody can just do it. There's a lot more involved in us making this offering and they have rules about what we can talk about. Okay. And we can't actually talk about dollar amounts. People have to go to the website sure. and all the information is right there. It's super easy to read and all that's right there. But I can tell you this, uh, for a year previously, before we did the equity crowdfund campaign, I went around and talked to rich people, people outside the business who, uh, who were wealthy. And I tried to talk to them to raise money and I raised a little money, it took a year. In seven weeks, um, I have raised 140% of what I raised in a year talking to rich people. Wow. So, I love equity crowdfunding because instead of having to convince a few individuals with money to write a check, you can talk to the whole world. International investors, we have investors from Australia and Europe who are putting money in. Anyone can invest in this, anyone. And uh, it's really exciting because we just have to get the message out to the crowd and people who get it, people who get the movie that we're doing, who understand it are like, oh, this is fun. It's an investment too, cool. So instead of, let me tell you a story about one investor I talked to, I was talking to this very wealthy fellow, nice guy. Uh, we're sitting in wingback chairs next to his private lake, okay? I felt like I was in the movie Casablanca with Sidney Greenstein. And I'm pitching him a project and he says, well, you know, this lead character, he read the script and he's not in the business, so he, he's not used to reading scripts, he's used to reading you know, flow charts and, and, and accounting statements and profit and loss sheets. But he read this script and he says, you know, in the beginning of this movie, uh, I don't like the lead character. She's not very likable. I said, well, yeah, but you like her later? He goes, yeah, yeah, I like her by the end. I go, well, that's the idea is that she changes. Movies have an arc where the character starts out a certain way. They go through the story. And if it's uh, an upbeat ending, if it's a comedy, and they improve their life. They, they find love, they find success, whatever, they find it, and we go along the journey. So she changes. And he goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but I don't like her in the beginning. I said, oh, oh, right. And I explained it again, what an arc was. And I'm sure a lot of your, <laughs> the people who are your readers who, who go to your site, there are a lot of them are writers. They understand this in a movie. 
you changed. There's an arc. So we talked for 20 minutes like this and he kept saying, but, but I don't like her in the beginning. And finally, I said to the guy, I said, you know, there was a character in a movie. She was very mean. She used people. She didn't care about anybody but herself. She was selfish. She was basically just a horrible bitch. And she, this character was the lead character in the highest grossing film of all time called Gone with the Wind. And, <laughs> and this guy was in his like uh, 70s. So he knew that movie. So he got that and, one, he goes, yeah. and he goes, oh, <laughs> oh. And it was just surreal having this conversation with this guy here, trying to explain this to him. And it wasn't his business, so he didn't understand it because he didn't get this business. Whereas when we do the crowdfunding, the equity crowdfunding, a lot of people, even if it's not their business, they get it. They've thought about it, you know? They, they, they thought, oh, that would be fun. And so they get it. And it's such a tremendous release when you get it. On our Facebook page, we have a Facebook page for the movie, for that Christmas movie on Facebook. And it's so, we had last week, you know, we make little posts about the movie and who's in it and stuff like that. And we had a, a sweet little grandma from Missouri. She, she posted, this is great, thumbs up. And it was so heartwarming to see that we've reached some sweet lady, you know, that we didn't know in the middle of nowhere and she gets us. And as filmmakers and writers, that's, there's nothing better than when people get what you're doing. David, are you able to talk about how many people you knew personally? Or, or is, that, is that off limits? Well, I can talk about that. Okay. Yeah, um, and, and, and how many investors do you have, by the way? Sorry. We have, about a, we have about 140 investors at this point around there. And we only personally know about five or six of them. Wow. Uh, we started the campaign and we just went on social media and spread the word as much as we possibly could around. So these are people from all over the country and people that we don't know who uh, get what we're doing and they want to see a fun Christmas movie get made. They want to see it and they understand since they like Christmas movies, they figure, hey, a lot of other people must like them too. So this is probably a good business decision as well. That's what they're telling us anyway. And we just, and we take it really seriously, the responsibility to do our best for this movie so that we justify these people's faith in us. You know, it's, it's a really serious thing. Well, slightly switching gears, uh, off camera you told me about um, SAG and some of the rules regarding uh, casting actors and some of the perks or things like that. Can we talk about that a little bit uh, in terms of um, parts and things like that? Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I've seen uh, other Kickstarter campaigns for uh, movies and sometimes one of the perks they give is if you put X amount of dollars in, they'll give you a part in the movie, which I think is great. That's like a fun way for somebody who like, seriously wants to break into the business to get on the set. Some successful people. You know, and that's a good thing. Or people would just do it for a lark. Just, oh, it'll be fun, you know, do it. And I thought that was great. But then, as we're putting this together, because it's equity crowdfunding, because it's an investment, uh, we have a little bit more stringent rules as to what we can and cannot do. So I talked with SAG, and I said, what's the deal here? Because people are putting money in to get a job. Because if you're gonna, in the movie, that's a job. If you're one day, two days, whatever, how long you're shooting. 
And, and they said, well, it's against union rules. You can't pay to play. You can't pay to be in the movie. And you know, we have to comply with the union rules. And I thought, no, 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 I, I get it, that makes sense. And it turns out it's also against labor laws as well, just even without the union. So what we did instead was we thought, well, we just love the idea of having people that, that we don't know, people outside the business, maybe people want to get in the movie. We just love the idea of putting them in the movie. So what we did instead is we're running a contest, free to enter, don't have to invest, nothing, just click and you enter the contest and we're giving away 11 parts in the movie. Wow, are these bit parts or are these fairly yes. substantial roles? Okay. Yeah, they're bit parts. They're walk-on roles, right. speaking line. Uh, and we're shooting in LA in late July, early August. We're, we're not providing transportation. You gotta get yourself here, sure. okay? But you get yourself here and you win the contest, you know, then we'll put you in the movie. You will be in the movie, you'll be on the set with the stars, with the cast, uh, we'll direct you. If you're not a, already an actor, even if you're an actor, we'll direct you so that you fit right in. You know, you'll have your dressing room, you'll get the makeup, nice. you'll get the star treatment. You know, it'd be really fun to, to do. You know, we'd love to welcome people onto the set and do that. So yeah, so we're running a contest. <laughs> Free to enter, just click, click, and you're in. And you can enter once a day. You can get as many entries as you want. And then the, uh, uh, in July, the computer will randomly pick 11 of those people and we put you in the movie. So that's how we got around the SAG rules so we could get people in. We don't get any money from them, but it's fun. Yeah, that is fun. And it publicizes the movie. Nice. So it's like a random generator or something you're yeah. doing? To choose yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I found out that there are these sites, these companies that run these contests and they do these random things. There's a guy who was doing an equity crowdfunding campaign for the Jetpack, okay, which is amazing. He did a, a, a contest, and the winner of the contest gets to be the first civilian to fly with a jetpack. What That's a great cool. prize, right? Yeah, you get I to know. live in the future, <laughs> <laughs> to be George Jetson for a day. So yeah, so other people have done it, and it's super fun. Since you're one of the first feature-length films, is that right, to do equity crowdfunding? We're the first feature-length narrative film ah. in the United States to do equity crowdfunding, yes. Okay. Uh, and it sounds like you've done a lot of research, you and your team. Yes. So if you were to sit down and advise someone else that wants to do the same, what are some top five things that they should be aware of right away? If you're allowed to talk about that. Now I know there's sure. rules. So oh, no. within the guidelines of what you can talk about. Yeah, well, I can, absolutely I can talk about that. Okay. It's, um, that's a great question because that's a question I would love to have heard the answers to about six months ago when <laughs> I was embarking on this. Okay. The first thing you need to know is it's a ton of paperwork. It's like doing your taxes times 100. Mm. There's uh, accounting paperwork, legal paperwork. Uh, you can hire people to do this or you can do it yourself. Okay? But there are a few things where you do have to have an actual lawyer at least look it over oh. because it's an investment. This is a serious thing. You know, People are trusting you with their money and you're saying, hey, if you invest in our company, we're going to make money and we're going to give you more money back so you make a profit. That's what you're saying to these people. That's a serious thing, you know? And people in show business, we're creative, okay? We're creative people. We like to tell stories. We like to write. We like to act. We like to direct or things like that. We're not accountants, okay? If we wanted to be an accountant, we'd be doing that, you know? And we're not lawyers or we'd be doing that, okay? So you have to embrace the fact Number one, that there's a lot of paperwork and you're gonna be doing a lot of jobs that are not fun and creative like acting, writing, and directing is. 
Okay? So you have to embrace that and do these chores. You can hire people to do it. You can spend about $10,000 and have other professionals do all that paperwork and all that stuff for you. Uh, or maybe like five to 10, depending on, on, on exactly how much money you're raising. The more money you want to raise, you can raise up to a million dollars under the regulation crowdfunding rules. Okay. Um, you can hire people for five to $10,000 to do all that stuff for you. Okay. And then the second thing is have a great video. It's really important, Kickstarter campaign and stuff, you have to have a great video that gets people excited. Okay. The third thing, which I found out from, I, I emailed people who had done successful campaigns, uh, people who had a biotech company, an electronics company, uh, <clears throat> a food company, uh, completely different than the movie business. But I emailed them and said, hi, I'm gonna do this. Do you have any advice? To my surprise, they wrote back generously, told me a lot of things. And all these people from these, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty different companies than us, you know, the biotech and things like that. Uh, they said that the vast majority of their investors invested for emotional reasons, for, because they liked the people they saw in the video who were gonna be having their money and running the company, because they got a good feeling for them. He said 80 to 90% of investors said that that's why they invested. Then only about 10 or 20% or you know, analytical spreadsheet kind of people who drilled down into all the numbers and everything and invested for those reasons and asked questions about you know, your ROI and your this and your that. Uh, that was a smaller percentage of people, uh, but substantial. They still put in a good amount of money. And so all these like companies that were formal and strict and not like fun and show business said, it's emotional. So I thought, wow, because and it made sense to me and i thought well i'm in show business if i can't make <laughs> if i can't make a plea that shows people how we feel about doing this you know then so that was the other big thing you said five that's three things uh oh, so you want you want five things oh so much pressure so much pressure uh oh the other thing is is you you're um it's going to take over your life um it's this is it's 12 14 16 hour days online, doing social media, spreading the word. It's nonstop. You have to have at least two people on your team full-time. Uh, we hired a Facebook ad team, people who are doing the Facebook ads and putting those out because we didn't have time to do that. Uh, we hired a consultants who has consulted on other campaigns like ours to tell us what to do so we could learn all this stuff. So you need a team of people. That, that's, uh, that's the other thing. That's four things. That's four oh, I things. Come oh, up with a fifth if you thing. can't come up with the five, I actually have two follow-ups. <laughs> so then, okay. then we can actually almost make it seven. Okay. But so the follow-up is, uh, you said there's a team of people that maybe you could pay around five to ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars to do some of this paperwork and all that. What what's the name of that job description? Like who? What 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 type of? T if we're searching for those companies, what are we looking for? What's the name of it? Oh well, there's uh, three things you can. Uh, you can search online for regulation crowdfunding consultants, ah, and you can okay. find firms who do that. There are some who you can come to them and say, I have this product, or a movie say, I want to raise the money. And they say, fine, you pay us X amount of dollars, we'll do all the paperwork, so all you have to do is provide us with some information, sign your name, uh, we'll do all the ads, we'll do everything, you know, and they, they cost more money. Okay. And they frequently will take a, 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 a portion of your company 
you know, 5%, 6% of your company as part of their fee, in addition to you paying them up front. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they become business partners with you in, in some yes. ways, they're investors, okay. Yeah, but you're paying them. Right, you're paying right. them in money and you're paying them in stock for your company. Um, you can find you can find those companies around, and you can see what companies they've successfully raised money for. Okay, that's a more turnkey system. Or you can just hire an accountant, the CPA, and an attorney who specializes in this field. And again, if you search regulation crowdfunding attorney, you will find people who specialize in this. And I find attorneys are pretty good if you're an accounting attorney and they don't really know how to do this. They'll turn you on to somebody who does. So you can. Cut the money in half that you're spending up front by just hiring them for very specific tasks. Now, what are those tasks that you need to do? Uh, what is all this paperwork? The great resource for that is the portal. They call these portals. Um, these are SEC registered websites. There's only 26 of them as of uh, this moment, as of uh, May 2017, and they have to be registered with the SEC. Um, and you have to run your campaign through them, through one of them. They're like Kickstarter, mm -hmm. but instead of Kickstarter rewards-based, it's uh, you know, investment-based, okay? You go to these portals, and there are the three top ones right now are Start Engine, which is what we're on, WeFunder, and MicroVentures. Those are the top three right now. Wow. They, have, they have the track record. Uh, you go to those sites, and they have a lot of uh, great information, you know, a fact that tells you what you need to know if you want to raise money this way. So you can find that out. It's a lot of research. You, you know, it's it's a lot. It's like three months just to get to the point where you can launch the campaign. Interesting. Three months of solid work. And then with hiring the attorney, uh, it sounds like are you just hiring them for looking over the, the launching of the campaign, making sure the wording, everything is correct? And again, if I'm overstepping my bounds with oh, the question, fine. okay. Uh, so so it's just sort of like you you let them know what needs to be done and then they sort of give you their hourly rate and then you're done once the campaign is launched or are they on retainer and you're following up with them throughout the campaign? Uh, it depends on what you need them for. Um, there are several firms that will do it for a flat rate. I say if you pay us $5,000 we will do all the paperwork, all the legal paperwork to get you launched and then a couple of follow-ups. Uh, for example, um, when we had our press release that we issued to the press to talk about the movie, I ran that by the attorney to make sure that we didn't violate any of the, what they call communication guidelines from the SEC, to make sure that we didn't say anything. For example, you can't say, um, if you invest in our company, you'll make a billion dollars. That's <laughs> because that's a promise that the SEC says, gee, you're not likely to have that come true, are you? And <laughs> so you can't, you can't, well, first of all, you, could, you can't lie to the public. That's just wrong anyway. But you can't overpromise in your excitement. You can't say, this is going to be the best movie ever. You know? And so you, you can't really say that according to the SEC. You, know, you can say, hey, this is our team. We have an Oscar. We have four Emmys. We know what we're doing, um, and we're making this movie. That you can say because it's true. It's a fact. So I ran all that stuff by the lawyer and to make sure that we weren't being overenthusiastic. We weren't, we were fine. So that's how you'd use a lawyer after you've launched. But all the other lawyer work is, is 
getting ready for the launch and the months before the launch because you have to fill out a lot of things. And when, by the way, when you launch this campaign, the SEC does a background check on you. I've never had a background check done before. I felt so naughty. <laughs> Sadly, I'm not that interesting, so I passed the background check. But uh, yeah, but everybody who does a campaign on these portals who are doing equity crowdfunding, they've gone through background checks to make sure that you know, right. nothing shady. Right, no securities fraud or anything like that, right? right? So then with the Facebook ads, anything you can recommend? Because we've heard that for some people they work very well. And I'm wondering if there's certain strategies with Facebook ads that you could recommend if, if that's within the guidelines. Uh, yeah, the Facebook ads have done well for us, uh, but it's been a real learning curve. I did not know about this whole world of data that Facebook has. I mean, I read, heard about it, read about it, I use Facebook. But until I started purchasing ads, when you buy an ad on Facebook, you can say what audience it is. You can say age, you can say male, female, you can say they're interested in this, they're interested in that. And Facebook will tell you exactly how many thousands or millions of people fit the criteria. And you can really fine tune the audience. You can have your ads run uh, within 100 miles of Charlotte, North Carolina only if you want. You can do amazing fine tuning of things. And so it took a while for us to fine tune the people who would want to invest in a Christmas movie. And once you reach them, they're like, oh, that's great. But if you're somebody who you know, only likes horror movies, they're, they're not interested. So Facebook ads can be very effective and there are a million consultants who would be happy to work with you to help fine tune these ads and they'll run like 20 different ads that are like subtly different or really different and then they measure exactly how well it does so that they can they can just narrow it down and find out you know i think of it as when you when you go uh, you know a, a sitcom when you're shooting a live sitcom with a live audience you do the scene and you see how the audience reacts and if they didn't laugh enough in certain places the writers uh, quickly write new jokes or they have other jokes ready and uh, they give them to the actors, they do the scene again and change two or three or four or five of the jokes in the scene and see if the audience laughs better. So it's a similar process to doing Facebook ads. You fine tune it till it resonates with the audience just like you know making that live audience laugh. Right. Now, did you work with a consultant or you've done all this on your own with your team in terms of purchasing the ads and looking at the metrics and things like that? I did it all myself. Uh, for the first couple of weeks because I thought it was interesting and then I realized that I learned enough to know what I don't know. <laughs> so I handed it off to people who do know who live and breathe this sort of thing so they can get results more quickly. You know, it's like, I mean, hey, you could, you could, you know, you could run the camera and the sound and direct and write the whole movie, but you hand off that camera and that sound to you know somebody who does that for a living so okay so you knew what your strengths were and you knew when because they say successful people always ask for help so it sounds like that's good you don't have to do everything yourself yeah but i'm glad i did do it for a couple of weeks because now i understand what the heck they're talking about that's good. when they talk about you have to learn things like uh, click-through rates cost per click Every time somebody clicks on your ad in Facebook, uh, you pay Facebook. So I just learned all this amazing stuff. Very cool. Yeah, it's good that you know what you're you know, getting into, but in terms of having someone else fine tune it, it sounds like you wanted them to do it. Nice. Yeah. Now with this campaign, is this an all or nothing campaign? Uh, no, we've reached our minimum. So 
once you reach your minimum, you know, you're, you're good to go. Uh, we've reached actually 700% of our minimum. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. in seven weeks. So it's... Uh, wow. Well, we'll have a link below this video and on the site so people can go to it and they can see more what you're talking about so we don't overstep anything. So. For those watching the video, they can go to your campaign and we'll have a link to it and they'll see that you've done incredibly well. How much do you think luck plays into it and how much of it is the team that you have and the hard work? Well, I will always take any luck that's coming my way, but it's like the old saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And where the luck comes in, I think, is if you hit the zeitgeist, if you hit a feeling that people have now where this movie that we're making resonates with them. You know, is it the right time for this? I mean, sometimes you'll see a movie and it'll be years ahead of its time and it doesn't do well, and then like years and years later, it does like crazy good on DVD and download and cable because now it's the right time, you know? And then you'll see some movies that come out and they're just kind of dated and you've seen them before and you're like, oh, this would have been great 20 years ago. You know, oh gee, your, your movie about, uh, you know, somebody coming out of the closet and having a gay marriage, that, that's cutting edge 30 years ago, you know? So it has to be really, really good if it's not like super fresh. Um, so the luck has to do with timing. Are you hitting the mood of enough people in the country so that um, they like your idea? But I tell you one thing we do feel is grateful. Anytime somebody puts in small investment, big investment, whatever it is, we feel really grateful and, and um, obligated to make the best use of their investment that we can. We have a philosophy, and I talk about this on the investment page. Our philosophy is put it up on the screen. When money goes into a movie and you have a budget, that budget is allocated to different things. You're hiring the crew, you're paying actors, you're uh, renting locations, you're doing all these things that need to be done. You're purchasing insurance, you're paying for the lawyer to get all the stuff together. All these things that need to be paid for. We want to put it all up on the screen. If we rent, when we go into production, you rent production offices that you're gonna need for two months. Now, if you rent swanky offices in Beverly Hills, that money is not gonna be seen on the screen, okay? Just rent some cheap stuff in North Hollywood that's perfectly fine, got some parking, yeah. okay? You've got offices and the money you saved will go on the screen in form of getting more days to shoot. That money can, another two, three, four days of shooting there or uh, uh, paying for an expensive actor to guest star in it or, or getting uh, bigger sets, more production value. Put it on the screen. So going back to what you said about, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get, and that's a great quote. Um, I forgot who said that, but it's, I see it a lot in like these business quotes and things like that. Can you tell me anything from your interesting life, and I know you've been in different realms from comedy, magic, television writing, where you felt luck really was a part of it and that you're very grateful for that. Any interesting story where you just kind of fell into it, the right place, the right time? Well. Like I said, I was on the road doing stand-up comedy, and it can be very, very difficult, uh, which sounds, <laughs> sounds, oh, poor you. You get to travel around and tell <laughs> jokes. Oh, my heart bleeds for you. What's your GoFundMe campaign? Uh, and I would watch comedians on talk shows talk about, oh, I'm on the road, it's really hard, and I would just go, what are you, boo-hoo, you have a great life. But then when you do it, I performed in 48 states, Canada, England, all over the place, and after a while, 
it's just, it's really draining. You can't have a relationship. You can't, it's just, it's very destabilizing. So I really need to get off the road. Emotionally, I had to get off the road. I went to go see a sitcom because a friend of mine was guest starring on the show. So I went, to, she goes, you wanna come watch? I go, sure. So I go sit in the audience, never been to one before, didn't know the show. The show was funny, she was good in it. And there was this guy doing audience warm up, which is the job, they hire a comedian to talk because it takes two, three, four, five hours to do the show. And they talk in between the scenes and they're, talk, and they're with the audience a lot. And this guy was terrible. He was awful, he was just annoying and nobody liked him and I felt bad for him as a performer, but also as a performer, I felt bad for him. My heart went out to him. As an audience member, I was just annoyed. And I thought, hmm, they're paying him to do this. I thought, hmm, so after this the show ended, I said to my friend backstage, I said, hey, introduce me to the producer. She goes, okay, so I meet the producer, said, hi, I'm David Willis, I'm a comedian. Is that your normal person who does the audience warm up? And she rolled her eyes, the producer rolled her eyes and goes, no. And I go, look, if you try him, you have no excuse not to try me. I can't be worse, right? She laughed, I gave her my tape. She said, okay, uh, we'll try you. And so it was lucky that my friend was on the show and that, uh, and that they had a bad warm up and that I was there at the right place at the time so that I got that gig, I got to get off the road, okay, and do audience warm up for a few years and that was my entree into that whole world. So yeah, that's lucky, I'll take it, I'll take the luck. Just off camera you told us that you go to meetup groups for writers and mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what meetup groups strike your eye in terms of why you go to it and, and what do you get out of going to them? Well. When I was first starting writing, I had some people help and give me some advice. Uh, the first writer's group that I went to, that I was a part of, it was all sitcom comedy writing. And uh, the very first notes I ever got on my first TV script was, this was so boring, I was falling asleep. <laughs> and, and we all laughed. And because uh, comedy writers can be can be pretty vicious in a funny way. And, uh, and then he said, when you got to this part, that's when I woke up and it was really funny. So this group showed me that right away that you need honest feedback, okay? But constructive criticism. Because this, this particular writer, he gave me that note, but then he told me what was working. So I go, you know what? You're right, I feel the same thing. I agree with the note. And so it really helped me out. That group, that little writer's group I was in, eventually dissolved because everyone got work. That's a great reason for a group to dissolve, right? Everybody was working right. on all these shows. So, um, so I thought, you know, it was really helpful when I was first starting out. So I thought, I'd like to help people too. So I go to the meetup site and I see those writer's groups. So I go to some of these and I just give them notes, you know, gentle notes, encouraging notes, but honest notes. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's helpful to people. And if you don't ever uh, give something back or help out other people, it, that doesn't feel very good, you know? So, so just, okay, so that's yeah. your way of giving back. What do you see, and I won't ask you five things, but what do you see as <laughs> several top things that most, of, most writers, new writers, have trouble with? Uh, well, the two big things are, one is passive lead character. I see that quite a bit, uh, I see it over and over. Um, their lead character has a bunch of people coming at them and doing things, 
you know, say, oh, you should do this. And he goes, okay, and he does it. It's got, if it doesn't come from within the character, then you've got no train, you've got no choo-choo pulling the train. It's not pulling the story train. What you've got is a caboose pushing it. That doesn't work, okay? You need to pull it and going somewhere. And uh, I see that a lot just with this passive lead characters. And the other thing is um, either no conflict or very lowercase conflict where people are, say if it's TV, people are flipping through channels and they watch something for five, six seconds. If there isn't deep conflict that's popping off the screen, they're gonna keep flipping. They're flipping past your show, okay? So you like conflict, you know? When you watch TV, you like it. Put it in your script. The, one of the reasons it's difficult is because in real life, people don't like conflict. If you're a nice person, okay, you don't wanna yell and argue with people and you don't want to hurt people's feelings, okay? But in real life, that's great. In a script, that's boring. That's just really boring, okay? So let the conflict go, okay? Let it go into that script, put it in there, and then it will jump off the page when people read it. You gotta have it. Passive lead character and not enough conflict. I see those two things all the time. And the other thing that I see is people are safe. Um, uh, I have a professional comedy writers group and people apply to it and uh, we've had like a thousand people apply to this group and there's only 20 people in it. So it's, you know, we always select certain people to be in it. It's uh, most of whom are professional or they're showrunners and they write for their shows. And if they're newer writers, they're good and they're on their way. And I get people applying to the group, you know, perfectly nice people, people who send their script and they have screenwriting degrees, you know, sometimes multiple degrees in, in writing and theater and everything in their script happens at exactly the right time. The exciting incident, the first act break, the midpoint, the third act, uh, and all these story threads are perfectly correct. And I don't give a crap because they were so busy being correct in their form, they haven't put any spark of madness into the script. They haven't put anything quirky and personal, you know? And it's not in there. It's like, forget all this stuff you learn and just let it pour out. Just allow your craziness, your weirdness, your quirkiness to be poured into that script. That's the other mistake I see is people, they're holding back. We want, this is show business. Okay, this is the one business where there's nothing wrong, okay? You can let these characters say weird things, crazy things, politically incorrect things, mean things, stupid things, anything. You have the license to do an infinite number of things. Do it. <laughs> okay, so speaking of conflict, <laughs> let's say the conflict was not in the script, but when you gave a note, was oh. there ever conflict? <laughs> and was there ever a time alternatively where you thought there would be and you were scared and actually the person thanked you? Uh, yeah, that's happened. I mean, there's, there's a way to give a note. Um, your job when you give notes is to help the writer tell the story they're trying to tell, to help them tell it better. Uh, you say, hey, this character is coming off as this. Is that what, is that what you meant? And they're like, oh, no, 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 I meant to be the other way. They go, oh, well, it's coming off because of this. And you tell them, and they, they're grateful. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that. You know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, from little things like I was giving notes to one person, and he described a, 
he's described a character as elderly, this elderly character. And then in the next paragraph, he called him 50 years old. <laughs> yeah, see, you're laughing. Um, and a lot of people at the table were, you know, around 50. And he's host. So I said, you know, when you say elderly, we're thinking, you know, and you say 50. Right. And he goes, well, isn't that, he was a very young writer. And he says, wasn't that, wasn't that elderly? And like, all the people they were like, no, you know, and I said, the reason this matters is because A, it's a little confusing. You we just want, you want clarity in the script. And B, if somebody who's reading this, you know, who could hire you is 50 and you call them elderly, it's just, <laughs> why create trouble, right? So there's little notes like that. And <clears throat> but I was working on a show. I came to work one day and there was a writer who was walking out with their stuff in a box and they had just been let go. And it was like, ooh. And we didn't ask the executive producer anything. We didn't, you know, but, but he said, he's a really nice guy, but he said, she didn't know when to stop defending a pitch. In the room, she was a perfectly nice woman, everybody liked her, but when you're in the writer's room at a sitcom, there's a bunch of writers there, and you'll pitch an idea. The executive producer said, oh, we need this in this scene, and you'll pitch an idea. And the exact producer will say, oh yeah, that's great, let's write that. Or they'll say, he'll say, oh, that's almost not quite, other people will pitch in, and they'll pitch something, pitch, and like three or four pitches later, based on your pitch, you come up with a solution in the script, and you, and you write it. Or the exact producer will say, no, you should move on, okay? Because it's their job to know what's in the show. The exact producer says that, and you don't wanna have discussions about it. And she kept defending. She goes, well, she kept coming back to it and goes, well, you know, if you did the thing I say, and it's like, well, <laughs> it's, it just wastes time and it puts, makes the executive producer feel bad because they've got to keep saying no. So he eventually just let her go. So I learned from that. That was in my career. Um, when you're given a note, like no, by your boss, okay, take the note, you know? Also, sometimes there's what's called, I don't know if you've heard of the concept, the note behind the note. Yeah, it's sometimes there's something under the note that is not clear, so you have to clarify the note for somebody, you know? But it's your job, if you're giving notes to professionals, it's your job to, to explain the note until you see the light go on in their eyes, okay? That's your job to make them understand the note, you know? And maybe your note is a great note, but it's not the right note for the story they're trying to do. But when I'm working at these meetups with uh, newer writers and stuff like that, you take into account that they're new, you know, and I've seen a million scripts and I've solved a lot of script problems and they haven't seen those yet, you know, so you just try to say, hey, this problem in your script has been solved in a couple of ways by doing this and this and how does that feel? And when you're giving the note, you can't be attached to the note. If it's not, if it's not a professional situation, if you're not their boss or whatever, you can't be attached to it. You can't get upset if they don't take your note. I mean, it's not about you, okay? It's about the writer and their script. So there's some really fun writers at these meetup groups. There's some very talented uh, people of, of, of all ages, you know, and it's great that they can come together right. and, and see their, their stuff come to life. It's great that the over 50 ones actually can get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm so glad they can make it there. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... I've written and I can't get up. <laughs> How many talented ones, truly great writers, would you say have MFAs, even have a bachelor's, versus those that maybe don't? Do you think it's really necessary? Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, 
excuse me, I know someone who just got a master's in television writing uh, from Loyola, um, and but I don't really know everyone's resumes in these, in these groups and what they're into. Uh, the nice thing about, I've noticed about people who go to uh, college and they get these screenwriting degrees is when you're young, you just don't have that much to write about yet because you haven't, it's why like a lot of comedians uh, don't get successful until they're at least like 30 because they just haven't done that much yet. You just need time on the planet. Yeah. And as a writer, the more time you have on the planet, you know, the more you have to draw from. So that's the great thing about going to college is that while you're young and still learning, you can learn the craft and the technique so that when you do have more things to write about, you have the right. technique. You gotta get bitter first. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't, probably 35 is the, is the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. writers, yeah, writers are frequently, there's a bitter, even when they're successful, there's a bitterness. Writers, when writers get together, they just love to complain. Uh, if, you're, if, you, if you don't have an agent, you love to complain about you don't have an agent. When you do have an agent, you complain that they're not sending out your stuff enough. Okay. When you uh, sell a pilot, you complain because the pilot didn't get made. When you get a pilot made, you complain because it didn't go to series. When you have a series, you complain that it only ran two years instead of six years. Okay. And I guess if you're Chuck Lorre, you complain that you only have three series on the air instead of <laughs> six. I mean, writers will always find a reason to complain. We're creative that way. So. But they voice what most people are already thinking, yeah. but maybe they just don't want to say it. So those that are embittered enough to say it, we're <laughs> like, yes, we won't say that, but we want to, we want to hear it. So. Well, that's a writer's job is to voice things that people can't say. So you're doing research on sort of a holiday themed film, or maybe it's just because you also like holidays themed films. I mean, you talked about Christmas story and things like that. What makes a good either Christmas film or even Halloween, something that's a, a theme that they know every year it's going to come up, people are going to want to watch it. They're going to want to watch it in a certain environment. They're going to be in a certain place in their lives, whether on vacation or having time off from work. Well, when I decided to write a Christmas movie for this a low budget Christmas movie, I looked at my favorite Christmas movies that I like, Elf, A Christmas Story, uh, even Bad Santa, and, and movies like that, and I analyzed them. I mean, you know, it's my business, my job, so I analyze them and I see what do they have in common, what makes it a Christmas movie, and why do I like it? And I discovered some things in common with the good Christmas movies. First of all, Christmas has to be in jeopardy. Christmas must be in danger. Uh, in Elf, uh, literally, Santa can't fly his sleigh until people believe in Christmas again. Okay? Uh, in uh, A Christmas Story, if he doesn't get that BB gun, okay, his Christmas will be ruined. All right? Uh, all the great Christmas movies, Christmas is in jeopardy. Um, and the other thing is it has to be family. It has to be about family. Uh, Christmas is about reaffirming the family unit. Um, in National Lampoon's A Christmas Vacation, okay, his relatives visit in the form of Randy Quaid, who's obnoxious. He, Chevy Chase can't stand him. Okay, uh, He's not getting, Chevy Chase doesn't get the Christmas bonus that he thought he deserves and that he needs you know, to keep his family together. And so there's all this danger stuff. His relatives are ruining Christmas. His boss is ruining Christmas. And all he wants to do is have a great Christmas. Okay. So that's in danger too. And it's the family 
that provides the solution. When he finds out that he's not getting the Christmas bonus from his boss, his crazy brother Randy Quaid kidnaps the boss and brings him there so that Chevy Chase can tell him off, okay? Which is a stupid thing to do to kidnap your boss. But the boss has an epiphany, you know, and says, oh, and then comes through and gives, us, so his, and gives the bonus. So his crazy, stupid, weird family that Chevy Chase just hated has provided the means to save Christmas. Okay, so that's another element that's in that one. An elf, okay, the, he's there to literally find his family. He finds his father, who James Caan, who doesn't believe in Christmas, okay? But by the end of the movie, James Caan has reaffirmed that he is indeed his son, that Will Ferrell is his son, and now he believes in Christmas. So it's in every single good Christmas movie. Christmas is in danger, it involves the family, and together they save Christmas. And weirdly enough, I mean, if you have enough of a writer geeky audience, they'd appreciate this. But in every Christmas movie too, almost all of them, there's a, a subtle and, and brief uh, sexual element, which sounds crazy. But think about it. In It's a Wonderful Life, there's this fallen woman, which in the parlance of the time meant, you know, a tramp, and she's going to leave town. So there's that brief thing about that. It's like, why are they put? Why did they put this in here? In a Christmas story, there's the leg lamp, okay, which is very sexual. It's a damned leg, this big, you know, a new leg with that black stocking on it, and, and the wife is like, ah, what's that doing here? She's threatened uh, sexually in in, in uh, the Chevy Chase movie, uh, Christmas, Christmas uh, Vacation. He's looking at the neighbor over the fence, the woman who's swimming in the bikini, and there's a slow motion shot and she's swimming and the water's dripping off of her. And what is this doing? What is this sexual <laughs> fantasy doing in a Christmas movie? In Elf, uh, she's taking, Zoe Deschanel is taking a shower. Remember, she's in the shower. She's naked in the shower. We don't see it, but we can tell. And she's singing and Buddy the Elf is listening and he's in there. He's not looking, but he's listening. So that also is like a sexual romantic element. What are these little things doing in these Christmas movies? When I was uh, uh, analyzing, I thought, why are these here? Why do they work? And then it hit me. It's there because Christmas itself, the holiday season, has kind of a, a nobility about it. it, has sort of a, a higher purpose. People are in, People are being their best selves. They're giving, they're buying things for people. They're getting together by the fire. They're snuggling up. There's all these really wonderful, positive, noble things that are people doing these higher things, okay? And when they bring in this sexual element, no matter how silly it is, if it's in the shower, if it's the leg, it's earthy. That is a little touch of earthiness, you know, of, of, of something base, something a little coarse, something very, primal down here. Whereas the other thing hits you in the heart, this hits you in the gut, you know? And, and it's just there, I decided, it's just there to provide contrast to the nobility of the rest of the movie, okay? And it gives the sentimentality a, a bigger impact in the end. And I thought about it, I thought, you know what? If they didn't have little coarse elements in there, the film would be treacle. You know, it would stick to the bottom of your shoe. It would just be too sickly sweet. And by doing that, you have the perspective, by, by diverting a little bit into the earthly area, you then give yourself, the viewer gives themselves permission to enjoy the sentimentality and the sweetness at the end.
That's my theory anyway. What makes a story boring? What makes a story boring? Ugh, anything with superheroes. Ah, sorry. <laughs> I don't like superhero movies. Okay. Uh, why? Um, That's a good, I mean, it, why? I, you know, I've watched, I sat down and watched like a dozen of them once. Because I said, okay, well, I got to look at these. I'm not giving a fair shot. And I just, you know, there's a guy running around in tights. If you're running around in tights, you should either be sword fighting, you know, in the 16th century or uh, in a ballet. Ballet is great. But the, uh, I, just, I just never buy into it. Um, but, I, you know, they're fun. I get people like them. But I, I figured out why they're popular, even though I'm not the audience. It's because it's uh, replacing religion. Uh, the single largest uh, religious demographic in the United States under the age of 30 are the non-religious. And uh, so religion is having less importance in life in America today. And I think it's being replaced with the mythology of the superheroes. Because you get to see, you know, like the ancient Roman gods, the ancient Greek gods, they had a whole pantheon of these. And now that's taken the place, you know, in comic. And you can dress up like them. And you can go to Comic-Con. And you can engage in your uh, religion. I don't know. That's my theory. That's, that's my crazy writer theory. No, I could see that. So then a non-superhero movie, what makes a non-one boring? Take that out of the equation. What makes a movie boring? Or a story in general. I know you talked earlier about not enough conflict or passive characters. I think a story is boring if it doesn't matter, if there are no stakes, if the people in the movie, if they don't care a lot about what is happening and what they're doing, then the audience won't care. That's to me what makes a story boring. If you're watching a character and they need to raise, they need $10,000. Why do they need $10,000? Are they paying for their child's operation to save their life? That's important. I'd be like, oh, that matters. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> are they just trying to buy a car so they can go to work? I'm like, okay, that's a real thing, I guess, but um, so what, you know? <laughs> Um, you know, uh, James Bond is, is, you know, is he, does he have to kill this guy because, uh, you know, because the guy took his parking space or is he doing it to save the world? You know, it's like, why? You know, unless you're the French, the French can make movies about being boring and make those work. You know, there are certain indie films where you can, you, you can actually delve into that in, in, in a deeper way. But, uh. For me, that's it. If, it if, if the stakes aren't there, if, it, if the story, if, if the hero succeeds or doesn't succeed or whatever, why does it matter? If it doesn't matter, I don't care. So for you, when you go to see a film, and I know you said lately that you've been so busy with all this, you don't even have time to watch television. But it, before all that, um, could you tell within the first few minutes? It was going to be boring for oh, you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. My girlfriend, bless her heart, uh, just has to listen to me. You know, after the first minutes of a minute, I'll say, "This is what this movie is about," just because I can't can't help it. Um, but like we recently saw, um, their finest. You know, their finest is a is a British film about a woman who is hired to make propaganda films in World War II in England. Okay. And in the first few minutes of that movie. 
they bring you to London, World War II, uh, under the Blitz. You know, there's bombs coming down and there's this young woman who needs a job and uh, because her husband uh, is having a hard time getting hired um, and so she needs a job and she goes into the office of the propaganda, the, the propaganda film office for the British government. They, they call her in and the stakes are there uh, for two reasons. If she doesn't get a job, Okay, her and her husband are in, she and her husband are in trouble, and uh, if she doesn't make good propaganda films, then the public, you know, that is being bombed, okay, may feel more bleak. Whereas if she does a good job with these films, they'll feel better. Now we all know how World War II ends, so that's it's not like that's in doubt. We're wondering, gee, who wins here? You know, but it's super. But we don't know how individual people felt in London at the time being bombed. So that's a mystery, we're gonna find that out. So immediately, the first five, six minutes of the film, you care if she gets this job and if she's good at it. What was it about those stakes? Because I mean, the storyline sounds great, but if someone else did it and the stakes weren't there, there, there must have been little nuances about how they drew you in that, that made you sit up on the edge of your seat a little more? Well, they had several kinds of stakes. They had just, first of all, the war. They had the big stakes, the, the, the broad stakes, um, the morale of London, the morale of England during this fight. Those were the big stakes. Then they had the personal stakes. Uh, she was a woman, they brought her in. It was this, this film office was run all, by all men, okay? And they were very dismissive of her. They had been told by a higher up that the propaganda films that they were making, that the female dialogue was terrible. <laughs> and so they said, you know, well, let's bring in this girl and she'll write the female bits. And they bring her in, they're very dismissive. They go, you'll just, we'll do all the rest of the work, my dear. You just, just fill in the female bits. And they were very dismissive. So right away, there's this uh, chauvinism appropriate for the time. And, and you're like, hey, that's not right. You know, 2017, you're like, eh, you know? And uh, so there's these immediate uh, personal stakes as well. So they added a layer to it mm. that, uh, that uh, was threaded throughout the movie. But it wasn't all about just girl power. They moved beyond that later in the movie. They made it even deeper. Sure, but that, that, those different layers, it sounds like, drew you in. There were the higher stakes, then her, her stakes at home, and then you add this sort of like combative environment that she has to go into. And yes. so there was many things. Interesting. Okay. Right. Okay. So then when you see a movie that within the first five minutes it falls flat, are we only seeing one layer? Is that sometimes why? Or, or it's, it, it sounds like we really can't break it down to a science, but. Yeah, it's not a science. If it was a science, then, you know, we have computers do it. We just, uh, sure. nobody knows what's going to be a hit and what isn't. And, there's so many factors in making a movie. So many factors from the script to what the director's doing with, and the cast, you know? Uh, one uh, a cast member, one actor may make a character sympathetic. The other, another different actor might make them annoying. You know, it's just so, so many factors. By the way, uh, I like the name of your website, Film Courage. I'm curious how you came up with that because it takes courage to make a movie. Um, 
even if you make a bad movie, I mean, nobody says to make a bad, but if you make a bad movie, it still takes courage. I'm not talking about the fake kind of courage that like Apple has when they take away our headphone jack on the iPhone. Uh, but it does take courage and to make a good movie takes even more courage. You, you, you have to take a chance. You have to go out on a limb. You have to do something that hasn't been tried before because if we've seen it all before, why do we want to see it again? Why? Why does it take courage? Because it seems like if it's in you um, and it just pours out, wouldn't, wouldn't nothing stop you? Or is it putting it out in the public space and holding it up to light for scrutiny? That's where the courage comes into? Well, that definitely. But to do it in the first place, I mean, to go into show business in the first place, you know, on the face of it, it's a stupid idea. Uh, 300 people move to Los Angeles every day to become actors. Okay, that is a million people over 10 years who've come here just to be actors. Now, the odds, if you just look at the numbers, the odds of you becoming successful as an actor are terrible. Uh, as a writer, they're terrible. Okay? So if you look at it logically, you go, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to become a doctor, I'm going to do something else because it's, there's, a, there's a very clear path. I get my degree, I go to medical school, I become a doctor. It's clear, it's logical, it's reasonable. So to even go into show business takes courage because the odds are you're going to fail. So the people who make it are the ones who can't do anything else. And by that I mean they won't get out of bed for anything else. They just can't, they have to do it. They're driven to do it. Okay, those are the ones who don't give up, who keep going because they can't do anything else. They just keep doing it. What about the theory that, you know, they say most entrepreneurs that are successful, it's, it's, they didn't really want to look at some of the odds and they were, you know, you know, the infamous Steve Jobs speech, you know, the, the crazy ones, the ones that, Kind of the one, the ones that sort of don't see it, they don't want to see it. You think that also plays a part? Not just that they can't do anything else, but that they, I don't want to say naively believe, because it's not naive, but that they can't see that they won't succeed. I'm not explaining it right. Forgive me, but but I know what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you've, I've heard really successful people talk about how they didn't know that they couldn't do something, so they did it. Right, you where know, sometimes smart they, people talk themselves out of something, right, where... Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's two, two sides to that. One is you willfully just ignore uh, bad odds. You just say, you know what, it's hard to make a movie, it's hard to make money from a movie, it's hard to return the investors money and to give them a profit, okay? So I'm not gonna do it. Or you say, hmm, it's hard to return investors' money on a movie and be successful. I'm gonna look at the things people did to see why they weren't successful, then I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna do something to make it successful. So there's like willfully just pushing that stuff aside and making your own damn path. Then of course there's the other way where you're just sometimes, you're just too, uh, just, you know, in ignorance there's bliss. Do you have a routine when you're starting a screenplay, whether it's a feature length, a short? Um, I often write backwards. I often think of an ending. 
And then I think, what's a fun way to get there? So I often do that. And then I think about it. I think about it a lot. I just let it just let it boil around in there for a while. And then um, and then I uh, outline it. Right? You know, outlining, getting the story right, that's the hardest part. You know, once you've got all that down, once you've got the story working and the characters working, then it's just easy to uh, to write it. Uh, Half the stuff I've sold, I've written with partners because you know comedy is great to work with a partner because you know you can you can work off of each other. You, you'll make a suggestion, they'll make a suggestion, and, and you play off each other's pitches, and then you arrive at something hopefully that neither of you would have gotten to alone. That's better. So when you're working with a, a in comedy with a writing partner, uh, it speeds it up. You're like a draft or two ahead of what you would have been if you've been doing it alone. What are your best screenwriting habits, and then what are your worst screenwriting habits? And you don't have to give me five, by the way. You could just one or two. Um, my best screenwriting habits, you know, I, I hate to say this, but there's no, there's no like magic habit or thing. You just put your butt in the chair and you just write. It's a job. So whether you feel like it or not, you sit and you do your job. I mean, there's no magic. I've had some young writers say to me, oh, I'm going on this writing retreat for a weekend so I can finally work on my script. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I've never been on a retreat to write. I just, just write. There's nothing magical about it. Sure, maybe the first draft will be, you know, poo-poo, but if you don't write the, the first draft, you won't write the second draft. It's, it, it, you just have to demystify. Sometimes people just build it up into this magical thing. Demystification. Just, just do it. In my worst habit, in my own writing, um, the last thing I put in is uh, visual comedy and set pieces because that's not where my mind goes first. I have to remind myself, make this visual, you know, something physical, a, a, a big set piece where crazy big stuff happens, and uh, that's just something that it's the last thing I do because I don't think about it first. So that's that's all. I just have to remind myself. Oh. We could use something big here, and then I, and then I put it in. And is that your worst screenwriting habits or bad? I mean, that's my worst. Oh, that's your worst. Okay, that's just my worst. That's that's set, like set. that's like a a, uh -huh. a weakness. It's a weakness okay. that I that I don't that it's not like there from the start. I have to say, uh, you know, it's like when you leave the house and you go, oh, did I leave the stove on? <laughs> uh, I have to be like, oh, did I put in some physical comedy? Oh no, okay, that's all. I mean. There's nothing mysterious about it. You just just write. Just write your script. I mean, you can't you can't teach writing. You're either a writer or you're not. You can teach technique. You can teach craft. You can teach how to fix certain problems. But if you're a writer, you're writing every day. And if you don't have time to write every day, you're you're thinking about it. For the new writers, though, don't you think they almost need a ritual? I know I know this retreat idea for someone who has written. It sounds. Like, why would you need all that? Why would you need to fly there and pay money and whatever? But maybe some people need that ritual. No? Just, just you know, in churches, they had rituals. Christmas time is a ritual. <laughs> no? Uh, the only ritual is sit down and write. <laughs> that's, that's the only ritual. There's, okay. there's nothing else to it. I, there really isn't. I mean, I wish there was some kind of magical. And people also ask me, gee, what book should I read on screenwriting? I'm just starting to write. What I'm like, don't read a book. 
No. No, don't read a book. Write five or six scripts, then read a book. Because if you read a book now, it's abstract, it's theoretical. You haven't done it. Okay? That's like saying, uh, you know, what sheet music should I buy? Do you have an instrument? No. Pick up an instrument, start playing it first. Okay? Because the books will make no sense. I read like five or six, I sold scripts before I ever read any books on screenwriting. And then I got uh, um, Story by Robert McKee. And I'm like, oh, um, that's interesting because I had a, like a problem in a script and I couldn't figure out how to solve it. And I was reading that and I go, oh, that's how I could fix it. Now, if I'd read that before I had the problem, then that particular chapter would have made no sense to me because I didn't have that problem yet because I hadn't written enough. I mean, I always say to these new writers, I'm like, I say, when they're talking to me about getting books and doing these things like that, I say, how many scripts have you written? And if they answer me with a number, if they know how many scripts I've written, how, how many scripts they've written, they haven't written enough scripts. You should know how many scripts you've written. You should be writing so many scripts that you'd have to think about it for a minute and figure out, oh, I wrote this and that and then. If you know like how many drafts exactly you did or something, you haven't done enough drafts. I mean, once you do so much of this, you build the muscles. You just keep writing, 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 you build up the writing muscles, and then you don't need rituals. You don't need this stuff because, you know, you built it up, you can do it. You said earlier about writers under 30 that they really hadn't lived life, and I'm sure it would depend on the individual. Yeah. I mean, you know, there could be some people that have lived by the time they're yeah. 15, and others by the time they're 50. You know, everything's been safe and easy and taken care of for them. But what are some things where they could live life? Let's suppose they have just a normal life with some good, some bad, ups and downs. How can they, how can they live life to sort of, you know, get a sort of a writerly brain? I know that's a really bad term, but I'm, it's, <laughs> we're getting toward the end here. But I mean, you know, so, so they can kind of have, be, be a little more well-rounded by 30 or whatever age. Doesn't well, matter what age, I guess. You just have to be around people. You have to have friends and you know romances and things like that. And you get your heart broken and uh, break some hearts and uh, you know just you know don't don't sit at home watching you know don't go to work for your day job. Come home and watch TV for six hours and go to bed. Go go to meetups. Go do stuff. Be with people because that's what matters. I thought I was some weirdo who liked doing this, but I found out that other people, other writers, like to do this. Which is if you're in a cafe or whatever, eavesdrop on the people around you because you're you're hearing real dialogue and real stuff, and it's really illuminating. You know, so I don't know. That's the only advice I can offer is to just get the heck out of your, out of your uh, apartment. Get out, get off your futon. <laughs> Go live life. Have you ever pitched to one of the studios? Uh, yeah, I pitched to one of the uh, the indie studios once. A particular script. I mean, I pitched to them, but this one particular indie studio, this producer. I was brought in a meeting to pitch with him, and I was brought in by another producer uh, who's a woman, and she's come meet this guy and we'll pitch him this movie. So I came in, I pitched him the movie, and it was a romantic comedy, and the male character, the lead character, he starts out with one girlfriend, he breaks up with her, he ends up with another girlfriend by the end of the movie. And the reason I bring that up is because to pitch it, this guy, this executive, he says, so is this what your life is like? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well this guy, he's got all these women in your movie, he's got all these women, what the hell's going on? I go. He, he has one girlfriend, then he gets another one. I don't think that's, 
That's really a lot. And he goes, I don't know, it sounds like a lot to me. That's like, you know, it sounds like he seems like a womanizer. That's what he seems like. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I didn't know whether this, this uh, aggro was coming at me, but I'm like, it's, a, it's just a weird meeting. Anyway, so we leave and the, and the woman producer that I came with, she goes, I apologize. I go, what's going on? She goes, well, I've been dating him and he wants to be exclusive and I don't want to be exclusive. So, so all this guy was doing was sounding off at me as a way of telling her, you know, you're, you know, why won't you, why won't you be exclusive to me? You know, that's really what the note was about, you know? So that was the weirdest pitch meeting ever because it had nothing to do with me, you know? And sometimes it's out of your control. What can you do? You just do your job, pitch, 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 smile, do your job, and that's it. At least she was there to tell you that because you wouldn't have known <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. You would have thought it was you. Yeah, and I, I was not dating her, by the way. No, no, <laughs> no, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. But at least someone was there because so many times things like that happen and there's an answer for it, we'll never know. But at yeah. least you got to know that. So then when you went in to do other things, was that experience always up there because you knew maybe it's totally not about me, but I don't have that woman there telling me the story as to why someone's acting this way? Yeah, one of the first pitches I did, I came in with actually a pretty famous writer. We'd written something together and we were pitching at Paramount. And as we're pitching, he's, he was talking, he was, he, we had this long, super complicated, uh, really detailed pitch that we thought was wonderful and he was describing it. And as, as we're pitching, as we're telling the story, the guy, this executive, starts to do this. He starts to do. Oh, no. <laughs> and, he was, and after a while, we, we realized we're putting him to sleep. Oh, no. We're putting him to sleep. And, you know, we're comedy writers, so we stopped and, and we started talking about it, but it was like, what a note to get. You're putting me to sleep. You know, we actually, literally, this guy, oh. and so that was like a huge lesson for us. We learned, keep the pitch short. Don't go into all these freaking details, you know. So, and never forget that one. Yeah. Well, the, it, there was no note behind the note. You knew <laughs> what was going on with that one. Okay. Indeed.